Stella made a beat, so it's go time. Welcome back, ladies and gentlemen, to another edition of the Core 4 Podcast, a podcast on the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network alongside GBB Live, 3ND, and the Starting 5 Podcast. Make sure you're liking, subscribing, downloading, whatever you need to do on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, or wherever you listen to your podcast. I highly suggest tuning in as we're recording today. On Tuesday, Justin Lewis and Ben Hogan of the 3D Podcast had Bobby Marks from ESPN, who is also a former NBA exec for the Brooklyn Nets, on the show to talk about the Memphis Grizzlies and their outlook going forward. And if you really just want like a, a national kind of inside look of how NBA teams operate or specifically the what the Memphis Grizzlies should do going forward. I highly suggest listening to that and uh, make sure you're also reading our written content over at the blog. You can find us on the web at grizzlybearblues.com or on Twitter at SBN Grizzlies. I'm your host Parker Fleming and with me is none other than big Nate Chester. Nathan, what's up? I'm very irritable, Parker. Uh, I have not watched a Grizzlies game in over a week right now. Um, today is the one-year anniversary of the death of Kobe Bryant. Like, I'm just I'm just not in great spirits today, okay? I've been better. It's understandable. Um, yeah, so this is uh, the one-year anniversary of Kobe's death. And um, since I'm working from home, I'm wearing my Kobe Bryant jersey right now. But – it's very surreal like looking back on it because it's one of the first memories that at least I have where you know how they always say you always remember where you were when you heard this? Yeah, that's one of those things. See, like I was too I was too young to remember where I was uh, like during 9-11, even though I was alive during that time. Like I remember last year, I was on my way home from Pensacola. Uh, I had just gone to uh, Allie's brother's Navy um, winging ceremony. And and then all of a sudden, I get a phone call from my dad, and he said, did you just hear about Kobe? He just died in a helicopter crash. And, like, I was just – it just all hit. Like, I was like, whoa, no, this can't be real. This can't be happening. Sure enough, it was. And it, it, it's just – and then looking at all the – you know, all the what all the players had to say because we're in a league now where probably 99.9% of these players grew up watching Kobe Bryant. We're about to enter a phase in the league where none of these guys, like all the guys that play Kobe are going to be, you know, entering their primes or like on their way out. But everybody looked up to Kobe and including us, even though we're not basketball players, we looked up to Kobe and it's just always going to be a moment that we look back on and remember really forever. I think for those of us like you and me, I think we have a very different view of Kobe Bryant as compared to somebody who grew up in the seventies or eighties and watched Michael Jordan play. And I made this point in the article I wrote 
uh, the day after he died last year that Kobe Bryant was for all intents and purposes, even if his greatness never eclipsed his, he was the Michael Jordan of our generation to the point where you and I unconsciously identify NBA basketball with Kobe Bryant, no matter what your view of him as a person or even as a player was, um, the first year I started really following the Grizzlies, I'd watched some games here and there, but it was the two, um, the 2003, 2004 season. Um, they would make the playoffs that season. And I vividly remember Kobe Bryant dropping 60 points in three quarters with Shane Battier being his primary defender throughout that game. And I was also introduced to Kobe Bryant through the first NBA video game I ever played, which was also from that year, NBA Live 2004. And Kobe was my favorite player to play with in that game. And obviously I got a firsthand look at his greatness based off how he did in that one game against the Grizzlies. But I never had some strong suited affection for Kobe Bryant. He was never my favorite player. He was never someone I hated or disliked because frankly, the Grizzlies were not relevant enough for them to pose a real threat to him in the Western Conference in the playoffs when he was at the peak of his powers, when he was at his prime in two different dynasties with the Lakers. But you don't really realize how much you come to identify a certain thing with a person until that person is gone. And I'm with you on how surreal it all was. I was sitting on my couch um, and I would go to the Grizzlies game against the Suns later that day. And I was on my couch and I'm in the same group text that you were. And my phone's just blowing up and I don't have any context for it. It's just, oh, no. Oh, God, no, this can't be. And of course, I immediately think there's been a tragedy of some kind. What is it? And you take someone like Kobe Bryant, who you've identified with the game of basketball that from the time you and I were playing church league, when we thought basketball, we thought of Kobe Bryant. He at least came to mind in some way, just larger than life in that way. And that person is gone in an instance in horrific fashion. And, you know, I think about not to get too preachy here, but I will get with the pastoral thing, but I think <laughs> about what it says in scripture for it said where man is like a wilting flower here today here one day and then gone in the next and that's not true just for us but it's true for our legends for the myths that we create around our legends as well and it was a humbling reminder of just how fragile our lives really are in comparison to the world around us and it takes someone like him going away, no longer being with us to help remind us of that at times. And it's tragic, but it happens. For sure. Yeah. And one of the, like, I remember like my first memories of like Kobe was, I remember my dad taking me to the Grizzlies Lakers game when the Lakers had Kobe and Shaq, Carl Malone, Gary Payton, you know, that was just because like a super team, like really the first super team that we've really experienced in our lifetimes where uh, two all-stars go and pair up with, other all-stars our first our first really Tommy experienced that I also I used to sit by the uh, visitor tunnel like growing up like back when uh the Grizzlies you know they weren't really any good and Kobe dropped like 65 on a very poor Grizzlies team and you're, you're just like, dang, like this guy is one of the greatest scorers I've ever seen because it was that, that stretch of time where, you know, he had a stretch where he was scoring 50-plus points for like four or five straight games. And I don't know, it's just always sur 
like it's just surreal looking back on his career and even like when he's playing against Memphis because you couldn't be comfortable at all watching a Grizzlies Lakers game because you just knew I don't care how close it's going to be Kobe Bryant will win this game for them the Grizzlies could be up by one it wasn't safe you just kind of like had this feeling He's going to hit this clutch shot. He's going to take over, and he did. And it's truly remarkable just not only his talent, but also just looking back at his impact, you know, on the on the guys that are young guys that are currently in the league, you know, like your Jason. Like I know he was specifically close with like Jason Tatum and Devin Booker, but also just the impact that he was about to make on or he was making on women's basketball, and especially with his uh, uh, daughter Gianna. It's just it's just unbelievable, man. It's you mentioned the that aura around him where the outcome of the game was never in doubt when he was on the court. And um I saw him play in person several times, but the most significant to me, I think the Grizzlies were playing the Lakers in January of 2012. So this was the year after the formation of grit and grind. And he and Andrew Bonham were both phenomenal in that game. They both scored. They both combined for like 80 plus points in that game. He missed the um, go-ahead shot. So there were about eight seconds left in the game, and Kobe brought the ball up the court. I think he was being guarded by Quincy Pondexter, and he missed the shot, and the game would go to overtime, and the Lakers would end up winning in overtime. But I'll never forget this, and I don't think this is true for literally any other player that is playing in the game today, not for LeBron James, not for Steph Curry, not for Kawhi Leonard, who have all had extremely clutch moments of their own. But I'll never forget – Pau Gasol grabbing the rebound after I think was a Mike Conley miss and he gives the ball to Kobe and as soon as the ball is in Kobe's hands and he starts to bring it past half court the whole crowd rises to their feet Grizzlies fans Lakers fans casual NBA fans everybody wants to see what's next because we they knew what they expect from someone like him whether you were a fan of his in that moment or not that's an aura of greatness that surrounded a player like him that you can't even really fully put into words and you can't fully put into context. And that's an aura of greatness that every basketball player to ever play will aspire to have and very few will ever attain it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But uh, I know one of the big things we want to talk about today, really just, you know, we're coming up with stuff to talk about since we don't have any Grizzlies basketball to discuss, but there is this little setter of what's going on in the league right now that very much applies to the Memphis Grizzlies. And that is just how great the 2018 draft class is looking. I have it up right now. And obviously like Luka Doncic and Trey Young, they, they've been great the moment they entered the league. Uh, Jaron Jackson Jr. obviously has sh- shown flashes of greatness. And then we've we're seeing this emergence from Guys like Colin Sexton, DeAndre Ayton, Shai Gilgis Alexander, Mikhail Bridges, Michael Porter Jr. But even you go down and there's a lot of guys that you can just see sticking around as good role players like Miles Bridges, Dante DiVincenzo, Kevin Herter, Lonnie Walker, and Landry Shannon. And even even going around, like even names like that, yeah. That's just one round. And you go into yeah. the second mm-hmm. round, too. I mean, granted, the Memphis experience wasn't great, but Javon Carter's been good in Phoenix. He's carved out a role. Jalen Brunson, Devontae Graham, Mitchell Robinson, Gary Trent Jr. 
Uh, Bruce Brown is playing a role for uh, Detroit and obviously, or not Detroit for Brooklyn. And then obviously like you have DeAnthony Melton and we've seen his impact and all the way down at 54, you have Shake Milton who's become a sixth man of the year candidate in year three. So I know everybody's going to always say 84, 2003, 1996, but I, I don't know if it's going to be up the level as like 1996 or 2003, but this surely has to be one of the greatest draft classes we'll ever see, right? Absolutely, for sure. And I think once all said and done, especially, I think it'll be dependent on how the final upsides of players like Aiton, Michael Porter Jr., and Jaron Jackson end up being to whether they, this will quantify at the top as one of the most talented classes ever, like the 84 draft class, like the 96 or the 03 draft class. But we talk a lot about the top tier talent. We talk about Luca. We talk about Trey. But man, I'm looking at this first round and there are only two players picked in the top 30 who have not been rotation players at the very least over the last few years. And that's design and Musa. It was picked by Brooklyn at 29th and Jacob Evans, who was picked at 28th by golden state. Every other player on this list has been at the very least a tertiary rotation player during their NBA career so far. That is absolutely stunning. That is absolutely um, amazing when you compare that to recent drafts over the last few years, that there were so many hidden gems and not just gems in the sense that they can be role players for years to come, but guys who can become legitimate stars in their own right. And that really is stunning to see. Mm -hmm, For sure. And one thing I want to get your opinion on too, is just how Jaron Jackson Jr. And even uh, DeAnthony Melton, lie in the thick of things here uh, real quick on Melton. I He's become one of the biggest uh, impact players off the bench in terms of uh, on off rating plus minus. I mean, last year, literally every single lineup, D'Anthony Melton in, it looks like a good one. He was part of the most efficient bench trio last year with him, Clark and Tyus Jones. And I remember listening to podcasts too, like especially like in the middle of the pandemic, you know, where we all, basically had to do redrafts because nobody else can come up with content. And there are people that would have DeAnthony Melton in a redraft in the back half for the lottery. So he's emerged as a guy that could, that was one of the biggest steals in this draft and could be an elite role player. But also with Jaron Jackson Jr., it's, he's a very interesting player because in a redraft, given his upside and everything, he can go like two, but given the emergence of other players and where he lies, he can be like six or seven. So like where when it all is said and done, where do you think Jaron Jackson Jr. will be among the best in this draft class? I'll put it simply. I have no idea. I truly have no idea what to say to that. Um, there are so many question marks around Jaron Jackson to me still at this point. And we talked about this in a recent pod and like, this is a little bit, um, what's the word I'm looking for? This isn't something that people like to say within the Grizz Twitter sphere for sure. But, um, 
Jaron Jackson has not solidified himself as the Grizzlies' second star. He has some aspects to his skill set that make you think he could be a generational star in his own right, like Jaron Jackson or like John Moran. He's seven foot. He can create off the dribble, and his uh, ability to create off the dribble appears to be developing, appears to be growing. He showed that in the Orlando bubble. He's already a generational shooter for a big man. There are very few players 6'11 or taller in NBA history who had a season and shooting the basketball like he did last year, but also he's taking advantage of an NBA where big men are encouraged to shoot the three at a level they never have before. Um, our friend Peter Edmonston said coming out that I think he could be the defensive player of the year someday. I don't see that right now. His defense probably hasn't progressed to the point where you think it should based off his pre-draft projections. Um, it's surprising to me that he's been a much more impactful and effective offensive player in the NBA than a defensive one so far. But there is so much more to learn about him. And to be honest, I'm not expecting him to take a big year three jump just because of the injury and all the time that he's missed. Once he comes back, he's going to have to knock off the rust a little bit, among other things. But year four, I think, is when you're going to get the truest and most clear picture of what he's going to be as a player going forward. And there are a lot of different trajectories for what he could be. He could be something close to a finished product right now. I don't think that's the case. I don't. But there are uh, concerns that I have about his game that could very well keep him from being everything that we think he can be. He was still, he was the second, he had the second worst foul rate in the NBA last year behind only Dylan Brooks. It's a, uh, it's a wonder the Grizzlies were not the worst fouling team in NBA history because of that. But if he can't stay on the court, if he can't find a rhythm in doing that, then he's simply not going to be the player that he can be. That's an issue that he has to overcome. He's going to have to become a better creator off the dribble. He's not someone who has a very prolific mid-range game in the way that an Anthony Davis does. So he's going to have to become even more proficient at getting to the rim to make up for that deficiency in his game. It's funny because he's already shown that. Like he's already shown that he has the ball handling to create off the dribble, you know, with hitting step back threes, with taking bigger players and perimeter guys off the dribble. I I mean, we – on that, I think the key for him will be, can he progress as a ball handler and a playmaker to the point where you literally cannot guard him with the center anymore? You literally cannot put a center out on him. And not because he's just stretching the court or he can occasionally escape for threes and draw bigs away from the basket. I mean, they're literally not going to be able to stay in front of him in one-on-one situations. If he gets to that point, he's going to be a perennial all-star. And we, you and I both think he can be that. He's not quite there yet in that area of his game, but he can get there. Yeah. And I, I think one of the biggest things in Jaron's progression as a ball handler and taking centers off the dribble, I mean, for one, it was a true delight to watch him put Zion Williamson in a spin cycle in the bubble. He, he made that man look like uh, Enos Cantor with hops. That's but, true. I think I could put Zion on the blender in the blender on defense right now. <laughs> yeah. I, I think the biggest thing for Jaron in his ball handling is using the threat of his jumper to attack closeouts. Because as we saw on games like Portland, when he had guys like Yusuf Nurkic and uh, maybe even like a Zach Collins or Hassan Whiteside guard him, if they attack the closeout, or if they close out and he attacks it, they're not catching back up to him. He's getting to the basket and likely going to finish over a smaller player at the rim. So I, I think that's going to be one of the biggest progressions in his game and continuing to evolve in this 
I know it's always like thrown out as like six eleven Clay Thompson, but some of the stuff that Jaron does with the ball, especially from the three point line with his step back threes and stuff, that doesn't look like a a six eleven Clay Thompson. I mean, it almost looks like like a. I, I almost want to say he said he watched a little of his film, but it almost looks like Bealish, like a six eleven Beal, the way he can create off the dribble and hit step back threes. And honestly, sometimes he just creates something out of nothing. You see the shot clock winding down, and all he does is take a step back and fire it in someone's face, and it somehow goes in. And I think if he just can continue stretching the – the limitations of what his game could be, then I, I I think he could very well be the guy you look back on and you're like, okay, the only player in this draft class that was better than Jaron Jackson Jr. was Luka Doncic. Especially when you consider in what he could be defensively. I think so for sure. And, you know, that's just the fun of getting to watch him as a player. And I think I made the mistake of expecting more out of him in year two than he was ready to take on at that point. And he still just has he has he even turned 21 yet? Yeah, he's turned 21. Yeah, yeah, so he's just 21 years old at this point. And I mentioned year four. He will still have growth to do. He is still a long way from his prime, his physical prime, and also his prime as a basketball player. So there's still so much more to glean from him in the coming years. And like I said, I don't know what he's ultimately going to be, but that's the ultimately the most fascinating thing about him as a player is that I look at him and there's no easy comp for him as an NBA player. We mentioned Kevin Garnett. We mentioned Anthony Davis, um, both pre-draft and after the Grizzlies selected him back in 2018. And to this day, he's not either of those guys. He's very distinct and different from both of those guys and really from any other player playing the game here today. And when you take that into consideration, it's very difficult to try to figure out what he's going to be. But that's the allure of a player like that. You could be in possession of someone who is unprecedented. And that's exciting. It really is. For sure. And there's and just getting to this um, before we wrap up the show here uh, on Twitter. Thank you for all the people that had uh, participated. We had asked an open-ended question. Instead of a poll, we just did open-end. And we asked if you could pair anybody from the 2018 draft class that's not named Luka Doncic or Trey Young next to John Morant and Jaron Jackson Jr., who would it be? And I appreciate uh, all the answers. We, we've had a lot for uh, Mikhail Bridges, Michael Porter Jr., Jay Gilgis Alexander, Colin Sexton. Uh, I got I to gotta shout out my guy, Stuart Carter, for making a good one, really, that I really enjoy. That's Shake Milton. Shake and bake. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, uh, Nate, before I answer and get my opinion, I think I already know yours. It's MPJ. Yeah, I think it has to be. Um, there are concerns about that with me, the back issues, which, which – uh, Fortunately, it's not really been an issue for him going back to the second half of last year. Um, he held up in the bubble just fine, and he's missed some time this year because of health and safety, not because of any health issues, actually. Um, generally, what you're looking for next to John Moran, a three, a three-level scorer who's also a 6'10 wing, that's very tough for me to pass off, especially considering how high I was on him. I think I had him at number three or number four. 
big board back in 2018. I'd have to go back and look at it. He would seem to be the best fit, and his upside as a possible all-star only solidifies that to me. If I had to pick a second, it'd be Shea Gilgis-Alexander, who would just be a perfect backcourt complement to John Morant in almost every way. My only minor gripe with SGA is I'd like for him to be a little more of a willing volume shooter if he were to play next to John Morant, which he could take on that role if he did. But you're looking for a guy who's long, who's athletic, who can take on more difficult defensive matchups in the backcourt while being a 20-per-game scorer and a superb playmaker in his own right, SGA is a perfect fit next to John Morant back at the backcourt. Um, neither of those players are ever going to be Grizzlies, unfortunately, unless something unforeseen happens in the future. But if you're looking for just dream, idealized fit, I think those are the two that you have to go with outside of Luka Doncic. Absolutely, for sure. And mine, I'll go ahead and give a two, two as well. For one, I'll have to say is uh, Shea Gilgis Alexander because we've seen uh, what he can do when he's paired with another elite ball handler, like how he was with Chris Paul last year. And I just think having John ja Morant and Shea Gilgis Alexander in the backcourt together could be the best backcourt of the 2020s if they were paired together. And I'm just hoping and praying that the Thunder just end up wasting all those draft picks they accumulated and Shea's just tired of it and actually wants to win basketball games after experiencing pretty great team success in his first two seasons, uh, making the playoffs with the Los Angeles Clippers and taking those uh, Golden State Warriors teams to six games. And then also last year's series with OKC and Houston. But I'm also going to go Mikhail Bridges. He's taken yep. this nice step into really becoming an elite role player, you know, shooting threes with more volume, uh, taking on the uh, tougher assignments defensively on the perimeter and excelling in that as well. And he's really looking like a candidate for uh, most improved player this year. And, you know, when you're talking about guys that could space, I mean, he's shooting 46% from three this season. When, so when you're taking in consideration, okay, who's a guy that can defend multiple positions, take on the toughest defensive assignment, uh, make threes and shoot threes at a high clip, all while not taking the ball away from John Morant or Jaron Jackson Jr.? Mikhail Bridges is honestly like the ideal fit there when you consider you know age and skill set and fit. And I, I remember, you know, when I thought the Grizzlies were really going to blow it in 2018 and just start winning meaningless games to ruin that draft uh, lottery odds. I was becoming comfortable with, you know, if they fell in that seven to nine range, going ahead and taking a guy like Mikhail Bridges, because at the time I thought he was a good fit next to uh, Conley and Gasol. And so I, I'm, I'm going to stick with either SGA or Mikhail Bridges, mainly because of the unknown with Michael Porter Jr. Because, if Michael Porter Jr. lives up to that potential, like he's honestly, he would be the second guy behind Luca, to be real. 
For sure. And, you know, on McHale, especially if the Grizzlies had drafted him back in 2018 by trading down or whatever else, um, there's more to his game than he's showing even right now. And I think you're going to start to see that come to fruition over the next couple of years. He was drawing Kawhi Leonard comps when he was at Villanova. He's a guy who could be more than just an impressive three and D player like he is now. I expect him to develop into a solid three level score in his own right over the next coming years. And if he's able to do that, it could possibly bring the Phoenix Suns up another tier. Absolutely, for sure. And Nate, that's about all the time we have here. Uh, do you have any final remarks before the show, or do you uh, want to let the people know where they can find you? Free the Memphis Grizzlies. They're not even sick. Free them. <laughs> Let, do that. And uh, make sure you're following Nate on Twitter, at NathanChester24. That 24 is for Kobe, I assume, right? It actually was. It was also my AAU number, which I chose for Kobe. Very poignant. Thank you for reminding me. Mm-hmm, absolutely. So, yeah, make sure you're following him to read all of his written content at grizzlybearblues.com. And make sure you are not canceling him. He has the word of God to preach on the web, so d- don't cancel him, please. Don't take my platform from me, please. Please don't. Yep, and uh, you can find me on Twitter at Paca underscore Flocka. Read all of our work over at grizzlybearblues.com. Follow the blog on Twitter at SB and Grizzlies. And follow the podcast on Twitter at the Core 4 Podcast with the number four, not the word four. We'll do more of those uh, questions of the day before podcast for sure. I really liked all the, the feedback we had gotten there. And uh, make sure you're liking, subscribing, and downloading every episode on the Grizzly Bear Blues Podcast Network. Find it on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Stitcher, Megaphone, iHeartRadio, or wherever you get your podcast. Nate, have the honors. That's all, folks. 